there, and welcome back to another episode of my podcast, The Break. I'm Father Roderick, and it is time to talk about a lot of different topics. I want to talk about what's going on at Disney. They are canceling, you know, big productions here and there. What's going on? I have a lot of thoughts, and of course, all the other ingredients that you're used to hearing on this show. You know what my favorite uh, part is of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies? It's that scene where you see Bilbo cooking a fish. You know, he's in, at Bag End in his kitchen. He, ha- he just had his encounter with this strange wizard who talked about a, an adventure and he wasn't really interested in going on adventures because he's a hobbit. You know, he just he likes his life the way it is and is certainly not wanting to uproot it. And so after he said goodbye to this strange bearded uh, wizard, he went back to his kitchen and started uh, cooking a fish. And that's where uh, the dwarves barge in and take over the kitchen. And there's a lot of cooking and eating and plundering of of his uh, pantry. And the reason that I love that sequence so much is that I feel very much for Bilbo. I like my kitchen as well. I like to cook for myself, sometimes for guests. I like the tranquility of just working with my hands. I'm, as you can imagine, uh, most of the time sitting at a computer or I'm carrying cameras, filming or another recorder. I'm always busy with technological stuff. And uh, when I'm in the kitchen, I can just focus on the smells and the tastes of, of what I'm making. And I love to explore. For me, it's also a way to try out new things and to learn in the process. And it makes me feel like a hobbit. Turns out my parishioners know me very well because this morning after Mass, a lady came up to me and said that she had bought me a birthday present. However, my birthday was more than a month ago. It was on April the 5th. Um, But she she saw a book that she wanted to gift me and then never got around to handing it over to me. So this, this Sunday after Mass, she said, I really want you to have this. I think you will like it. And I had no idea what to expect. So I unwrapped the the gift and I was surprised to find an elven cookbook it's uh it's written uh to be a recipe book inspired by the elves of Tolkien and she said I saw this in a bookstore and I immediately knew that this was something for Father Roderick. And I couldn't be happier. This is so incredibly cool. Because for me, Tolkien, the world of Tolkien, um, just has a lot of food in it. You know, first breakfast, second breakfast, 11 seas, <laughs> lunch, dinner. Uh, hobbits like to cook. I like to cook. I feel a little bit like like a hobbit myself, and now I have a cookbook that is inspired by all these adventures of Bilbo, who I think after he came back to the Shire, um, must have started to try to to make the food that he had at Rivendell and um, recipes that he learned along the way. And and so this book is is filled with incredibly looking. Look at the, the gorgeous photos. This is Gondolin Rose Petal Jelly. Um, and it has a little story uh, connected to each and every recipe that also refers to the adventures of Bilbo and the elves. Um, look at this. I don't know what this is. These little dough balls um, 
with a crispy coating and the insides fluffy and with juicy pieces of salt cod. These are delicious served piping hot with aperitives or as a starter. So these are called Fingolfin's Salt Cod Fritters. <laughs> There's Elwing's White Pizza. I didn't know they had pizza in, in Middle Earth. That's yet another reason for me to migrate to Middle Earth. And then the thing that I really really love discovering in this book is that there's actually a recipe for lambas. Koimas is the original lambas bread given to the elves by Orome for their journey westward across Middle-earth en route to Valinor. This Quenya word means life bread, implying its key role in sustaining and nurturing the elves during their long trek. The bread was made from the corn, the wheat of Yavanna, so it also seems to have had a sacred quality too, something akin to the manna provided by God to the Israelites during their 40-year trek through the wilderness on their way to Canaan, the promised land. And of course, for Catholics, it's also a clear play on the whole theme of the Eucharist, which for for Catholics is such an important sacrament because it's it's our nourishment. It is literally life-giving bread because it contains the, the, the giver of life himself, Jesus Christ. And so this is a recipe. It's, of course, not... Tolkien didn't write recipes, but this is based on what how you maybe could make a dough and then, and then uh, cook it so that you create something akin to, uh, to the lambas described in the books and what we also see in the movies. I can't wait to try all these recipes out. I'm so grateful. And now, of course, I wanted to know if there's also a Hobbit version of this and maybe even a dwarven cookbook. This this seems like a golden formula. And and this is just one of these things where I love to have it as a book. I, I like my e-books, but just look at these gorgeous photos. You can't have that on a Kindle. It's all in black and white and it's small. I can just put this in the kitchen and just by looking at the pictures gives me a, the appetite of a of at least 12 dwarves at the same time. So I'm so so thankful that every once in a while in my homilies I talk about Tolkien and Star Wars and so my parishioners actually really get to know me quite, quite well. And with that, let's move on. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. I want to talk about a new science fiction movie written and directed by none other than the writer and the director of one of my favorite Star Wars movies, Rogue One. I'm talking about Garrett Edwards. We haven't heard from him for a while. Um, and, of course, Rogue One was a, a, a very difficult production. Part of the script was being rewritten. It was uh, changed over the course of the entire production uh, process. However, it did result in a fantastic movie. And one, of, even though maybe other writers uh, were involved in this, uh, Garrett Edwards had this pitch of let's do a serious war movie. Let's make Star Wars a bit more realistic. And I think that Andor, the one I think one of the best television series that we have, one of the best stories ever told, I think in the Star Wars uh, in the Star Wars galaxy, is based on what Rogue One established. And I hope that that movie will always 
stay a, a source of inspiration for future Star Wars stories. I don't want all Star Wars to be like Rogue One or like Andor, but yeah, definitely give us more stories in that vein. So Gareth Edwards has now created a, a new science fiction movie, which of course has nothing to do with Star Wars. The trailer just came out, and so I want to react to that trailer live here on the show and uh, share my thoughts on what we get to see. So the opening shot that's here at the beginning of the trailer already looks amazing. Uh, let's take a look. What's heaven? It's a peaceful place in the sky. Are you going to heaven? Oh, wow. No. Why not? Gorgeous cinematography. You gotta be a good person to go to heaven. Ten years ago today, oh, the wow. artificial intelligence created to protect us detonated a nuclear warhead in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. So this is about the dangers of AI. That's very topical. As long as AI is a threat, we will never stop hunting them. Whoa. This is a fight. What's that? very existence. This is filmed in Whatever's in there, in they're sure worried about someone getting in. Yeah, that looked like Canary, Canary Wharf. Scope of this. Come back to you. We're just saying we can't go to heaven because you're not good. Wait a minute. And I'm not a person. <laughs> AI is a, is a child? Did you Whoa. locate the weapon? Yeah, it's a kid. Seatbelts. With the wow. Oh, wow. We are this close to winning the war. Execute her, or we go extinct. Whoa. Oh, there are more. They're coming to get me. Droids. September the 29th. That's when we will get to see. This looks amazing. Resolve and interesting as well. Oh, hold on. I get very, it. Very, how do I stop this? <laughs> the trailer just can. There was like a, another video that uh, immediately started playing after this. So this looks fantastic. It, it, I'm blown away by the visuals and. I immediately noticed some religious themes in there as well. I mean, the child is is clearly the symbol of of new life, but it's it's a life that at the same time is a threat to to humanity as it is. Um, and then you you have this dilemma: should we protect this new life? Should we respect it, or should we fight it? Which I think is basically what's going through everyone's mind now when we see how powerful AI already is and how quickly it's developing. 
is what should we do? How should we relate to all these possibilities? Should there be regulation? Is this going to be ultimately a threat for us? Or is it is it the birth of something new and wonderful and something that can help us to make the world better? I love the themes. I like how this looks. There was one thing I read about the movie which completely shocked me, and that has to do with the production of this movie. Apparently, this entire movie, everything you saw in that trailer, was filmed, uh, besides, of course, uh, be, there being lots of CGI and special effects, but the, the cameras that they used were actually consumer-grade cameras. It's the, uh, it's the Sony FX3 that was used, which actually is uh, another version of the uh, Sony A7S III, which looks like a regular camera, uh, like a photo camera. Um, and I've been working with that camera. I don't own one myself because they're very expensive. But my cameraman uh, has used that camera for um, a about a year w w while I was working with him. And it's, it's an amazing camera, but I never thought that the quality was so good that they would consider using it for a theatrical movie like this one. It looks fantastic. And it uh, bumps that camera even higher up on my list of you know potential future cameras that I may want to save for. Um, but what a fantastic trailer. What a, a great concept. It looks amazing. And um, it's science fiction. What's not to like? Um, yeah, let's let's talk about Willow. Uh, I loved the movie Willow as a child when it came out. It was a fantasy production, but made by George Lucas, who, of course, we all knew and loved from Star Wars and from Indiana Jones. And then he had this idea: well, let's let's do something even even more fantasy based. Of course, Star Wars, in a certain way, is a, is a fairy tale. But he wants to do something that is much closer to like the, the, the established fantasy language, visually also. So he came up with this story about a, uh, this, this small child called Willow who, who discovers magical powers and is ultimately turns out to be the savior of the world, of the magical world in which he lives. And, uh, but it was a one-time movie. There was never any follow-up to that. It did pretty well, I think in theaters, but um, I guess George Lucas was much more focused on Star Wars and uh, on on uh, building his Skywalker range and, and all that stuff. So he never got around making any other stories in that, in that universe until last year. I remember uh, how amazed I was at the Star Wars celebration in Anaheim when they showed us the trailer for a new television series high profile on Disney Plus that they had been filming during COVID, so in very difficult circumstances. Um, and it was not filmed in inside uh, the volume, which is this digital set that they'd been using for The Mandalorian for the Book of Boba Fett. Now, a lot of these uh, scenes for, for this new television series were filmed in, in the UK, in, in the woods, in, in beautiful places. And that trailer just blew everyone away it looked so fantastic and for a lot of us it was like oh wow this we're we're we're, we're going to be able to reconnect to our childhood and how amazing it is to have a platform like disney plus where you can do follow-ups like this and you expand stories that we know and love without 
you know, the big financial risk of launching a movie after so many decades, which, you know, if it fails, it, it, there's a lot of money going to waste. The television series, of course, is, a, is much more easy to, um, to, to stay within a, a budget. So, Willow was launched. I don't know if I have a trailer of Willow here lined up. Uh, I think so. Let's, take a, let's go back in time and, and re-watch that trailer because I think it, it, it just looked amazing. All right, here we go. You think you know what is real and what isn't. What is light? What is dark? Now, forget all you know. Come with me. Willow. We're looking for the sorcerer, Willow. I was told that once long ago you defeated the forces of evil. You remind me of your mother. My dear friend, I thought I could prevent all this. I was wrong. My brother was abducted. The world needs you again. It needs your magic. Follow me. We must go beyond the edge of our world into the unknown. Willow! I need your help. Just like old times. Happy Our true enemy is still out there, rallying the forces of evil. And the only thing standing in his path is us. I'm going to enjoy this. If you think you're what I'm thinking, so am I. I doubt that very much. Take him to my tent and make sure he's tied up. I don't know. See, that kind of sounds like we're on the same page. When I was a kid, I used to play at being a sorcerer, visiting strange worlds, fighting monsters. Never thought I'd actually really do it. What the hell is that? Oh. <laughs> Trolls. I'm so miffed. We have to hurry. How will you defeat us? Same as last time. With my friends. how this was presented to all of us i mean what's not to like this didn't this just look totally fantastic i loved it when i saw this it had fantastic music the visuals were were beautiful it was super colorful it seemed to have humor and action and and big castles and and magic Oh my gosh, I was so looking forward to that series. We were presented with the new actors, the younger actors. Of course, there was Warwick Davis and some other uh, returning characters and returning actors. And then you had a whole slew of new younger characters uh, that would be part of this, this new, not a reinvention, not a re... Well, in a certain way, it was a reboot of, of, of Willow. And I couldn't wait until this was uh, launched on Disney+. Plus. So I was, at the moment it launched, the first day, I watched the first two episodes, and uh, I, I was a little bit surprised that I didn't like it as much as I thought I would. Um, I still really liked the visuals, and the music was fine, and but... 
there was something awkward about the writing and the pacing of the series. There, it felt a bit forced. The, the, the humor didn't land. Even Warwick Davis, I, I love what he does, but it, it, his performance fell flat. It, it felt a bit spun out. I don't know if it was the editing or the writing, but it, it just wasn't as good as I hoped it would be. Plus, it had also a bit of kind of a forced... Mm, I don't know. It, it was as you know. We're not just telling a fantasy story. We also want to make sure that this series is representative of the diversity and all the cultural themes that we're currently all talking about. And and Disney does this in a lot of recent productions. And in this case, again, it felt like you know the, the story doesn't need this. I don't mind it, but it was a little bit on the nose, and it started to get in the way of. Good writing. My my criticism of the first two episodes that I saw was a bit similar to what what I didn't like about Discovery. I, I loved the way it looked, Star Trek Discovery. I I kind of really liked the writing and the interaction of the crew, but there was also this kind of like on the nose, forced like here is our cultural agenda that we also want to make sure you get this. And yeah. Sometimes that got in the way of, of just good writing. So after two episodes, I just moved on. I was like, okay, it's on Disney Plus. I'll watch it some other time when I have some more. You know, I've I've got you know bigger bigger fish to fry. <laughs> there are other series that I really want want to watch first. But that's what I love about Disney Plus. You have this huge back catalog. I can always go back and and watch this. And maybe maybe the the rest of the series won't be as bad. I just don't feel very motivated to... It It didn't keep me on the edge of my seat. I don't know. It's just my personal experience here that I'm sharing. And then, and then just the other day, we got word that Disney is now planning on taking Willow away. It's going to be taken off, the, off Disney+. Plus. It's going to disappear. And that's not the only television series, not the only production that they're going to cancel on Disney+. Plus. No, there's an entire list that has leaked out. All of, all of that content will be removed from Disney+, Plus. not in a couple of months from now. It's, it's not an advanced warning, so, you know, you'd better get to watch this. No, it's in five days from now, as I'm recording this. I, on May the 25th, according to this news, Willow will be gone. And who knows? For how long? Maybe it's gone forever. Um, and so will all this other stuff. If you can, you can Google for the list. And maybe there's even more that's going to be removed. Now, this all seems to be part of this whole reshuffling that Disney is currently doing. Um, but it's a bit much, and it's all coming at the same time. Just this week, we heard that Disney, Disney World is closing down its its premium Star Wars hotel experience. You know, the Galactic Star Cruiser. You may have seen my the video that I did about that on my YouTube channel. Um, and so this too was a hugely promoted, high-profile new um, project of, of Disney in, in their theme parks where you would be immersed in the world of Star Wars for two days for a price. It was very expensive. If you would take your family, you would easily have to pay like $5,000, $6,000 to $7,000 for just two days of being immersed in, uh, in, in Star Wars. Um, and, and a lot of people were like, yeah, love the idea, but that's, that's not for me. It's way too expensive. So the, the, there was a misalignment of, of what Disney wanted to do 
which is make a ton of money on their on their uh, intellectual property and what people actually expected a Star Wars experience like that to be. All of a sudden, it was like, yeah, you want to go to, uh, you want to come to this um, this gambling planet that is so reviled in the sequels, you know? But it, there's nothing wrong with being rich as long as you give us, Disney, your money. And that, But it, it seemed almost like a betrayal of what Star Wars is all about, where it's always about simple people like, Luke Skywalker and Rey and, and Anakin and they, they are poor and then they get pulled into this adventure and now all of a sudden only the, the super rich can can be part of this Star Wars uh, project. Eh. So, but but th- on the heels of that came this announcement that they are going to cancel their own intellectual property on Disney+, Plus, which they own. And one of the writers of, of Willow um, has reacted uh, publicly, saying, you know, this is just cruel. They only gave us six months, and now they're pulling it, and nobody can watch this anymore. And I, I totally feel for the writers, for the actors, for everyone who was involved in this project. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who gave years of their life to create something beautiful, and maybe it's not to everyone's taste. Certainly was a bit disappointing to me, at least what I've seen of the series, but I was still planning on watching the rest of it and enjoy enjoy it for what it was. I mean, there, there, there's stuff in the trailer there that I certainly want to see. And now I won't be able to in a couple of days from now. What's the rationale about uh, behind that? According to the writer, you know, this, this can't be about uh, writing this off for tax purposes, which happened to the... Uh, the what is it a bad woman or a bad girl movie that was uh, completely finished and was going to be released on HBO Max and then it got it got uh, annihilated. Nobody's ever going to see the, the the hard work of of all these people that were involved in in that big budget uh, bad woman or bad girl uh, movie. But since that movie wasn't released, they could write that off. So. There was a financial, purely financial reason for doing that. But that doesn't count for Willow because it's already been published. So there can't be a, they can't use this for, for tax purposes. So the only other reason that we can come up with is Disney doesn't want to pay residuals. So every time someone watches Willow, Disney will have to pay the people involved. They get a small cut and it's not much. You know, so for sometimes it's, it's just, for a writer, it can just be as little as a buck a month or something like that. And so it seems so petty that um, a, a big company like Disney, with very deep pockets, uh, is, is, is nixing um, this, this big production just because they don't want to pay the writers and the actors any residuals. And this is in the middle of a of the writer strike, where it is all about this. You know, if you keep treating writers like this, you're killing the entertainment business. Because without writers, you don't have stories. You don't have a product. You cannot just rely on your back catalog to bring in new people. So what is Disney doing? I seriously don't understand it. There, I, I cannot come up, because it, we're probably not talking about a lot of money. It's the actors, it's the writers, and, and, and that's it. We're, we're probably, 
I mean, I can understand that for, for maybe for some other series, what they will do is, okay, let's take this off our channel because it's not bringing in new subscriptions. That's what Disney wants. They just lost a whole bunch of, of viewers in, um, I think, in India and some other countries. because, But those were people that were only subscribing to Disney Plus because of sports. And then they took off a number of sports programs and, and people started to leave the service en masse. This is not because in, in, in Europe or in the, in the United States or Canada, people are unsubscribing because they don't like Willow or anything like that. No, it, it's so... Uh, maybe, maybe what they will do is uh, they will try to make some extra money by by uh, letting this be aired on other channels. So that would be logical, or I mean, not logical, but I could understand that. That was maybe we'll make some more money if we can convince some other parties to pay us a lot of money to air the Willow TV show or some of these other movies that nobody's watching on Disney Plus. So we may as well try to find a, a bigger audience elsewhere because on Disney Plus it's not helping us. I could understand that, but there's, there is no mention of that. Disney has not said that they are going to do that. And so for us as loyal Disney Plus supporters, because I, I, I love Disney Plus, I love what Disney has been doing, and, and yes, I, I agree that maybe they've been trying to just do way too much. They're spending a ton of money um, and, and, and there's just too much content to promote. This is one of the things that, that Bob Iger actually said when he was talking about uh, why Disney Plus was incurring so many losses. He said, we, not only do we have to pour millions and millions into the production of new content that not necessarily always brings in new subscribers, but then we also have to promote all these movies and television shows and, and we're, we're spreading our budget, our promotional budget so thin over all these productions that it doesn't work. So we, we rather have a few or fewer productions and then really promote the heck out of that and make sure that people will actually subscribe to Disney Plus because of those tentpole productions and then stop doing the rest. But get taking a series like Willow no, no matter what you think of it, but a big tentpole production to take that off your own channel without telling us where it goes seems pretty stupid to me because, you know, a lot of people won't care that they won't be able to watch Willow because they weren't planning on watching it anyway. But this does uh, threaten the thrust, the trust that we have in our, in our media platforms. Because... In the past, you could still buy DVDs or Blu-rays, and you could you could watch it if you wanted to. You could bring some money to Disney or whoever was the owner of the series that was no longer on TV. But they don't make Blu-ray uh, Blu-rays anymore of series like this, and so there is just no way to watch this once they take it offline. That makes me a bit queasy about the whole brand, you know. It feels a bit like what Disney was trying to to do years ago when they had the Vault. Remember that? They would, they would try to artificially create scarcity by saying, oh, you can only buy the VHS uh, cassette of, of, of Snow White, for instance, for the next year, and then it's going into the vault. And for 20 years, you will not be able to see this movie anymore until we re-release re it. And then uh, that, that doesn't fly anymore nowadays. People will just find other means, legal or not, to, to watch this. But... 
what it does is it makes Disney look like an unreliable partner. It, not that I have a stake in Disney, but I, I, I want to feel that I am part of this whole new wave of creativity. I want to support the writers. I love what all these creative people are doing at Marvel and Lucasfilm and, and uh, you know, whatever other company is, is, is making this stuff for Disney. And, and this just feels like petty, penny-pinching uh, at the expense of the creative people, of the writers, of the actors. And that just feels wrong especially if it's done by, by a company with such deep pockets as Disney. This is what the writer's strike is about. This is why I support the writers in what they're trying to accomplish. And I think it is important for the future of the entire global entertainment business that we start thinking about you know, what it does to people. This is not just about money. It may be about money for the big companies like HBO, like, uh, like Disney. But this is also about killing something uh, like something wonderful that was that was created by people who poured their heart and soul in this, and it just feels wrong to kill it. That's all I have to say. What do you th What do you think? Let me know. I'd love to hear your opinion on this. All right, let's move on. <laughs> Catholics rock. It's that time again where we have to visit the peculiar bunch, these strange Catholics with all their strange rituals. What does it all mean? Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. No meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? This morning after Mass, I got uh, complained by one of my parishioners who said, Why don't we get rid of that darn frankincense? I hate it. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than blockbuster video. I'm totally honest. That person didn't say, uh, why don't we get rid of that darn frankincense? But she said, I really don't like frankincense. And I was upset about it. But I think after mass, I got the grace of just letting go of that. So I'll just, it's, it's never going to be my thing. But I, you know, I won't, I won't um, be upset about it anymore. However, it's, it's a legit question. You know, why do we use frankincense? I know a lot of people that don't like it. And a moment uh, I, I, I use frankincense every time. Some people will start coughing, even if they just see it. They may, may not be anywhere near the, the frankincense. But as soon as they see the smoke <laughs> around the altar, they start coughing and they start like... <gasps> they're breathing. Gets, and, and maybe for a very legitimate reason maybe it is because they're they have asthma um they they might have an infection of their air of their lungs or whatever um and f but for some other people it's just almost like a pavlov reaction they see the frankincense they have such bad associations with this with the smoke and and what that does to their lungs that you know they'd rather have the Catholic Church completely get get rid of, of frankincense. And to a certain extent, I have to say, I understand, I know how they feel. When I was an altar boy, 
And I've been an altar boy since the age of eight until the age of 18. So for more than 10 years, I've served mass every single Sunday. And oftentimes I would serve multiple masses. I would arrive at nine o'clock and I would serve three masses in a row because I just, I just enjoyed it. And there was always the, let's say, old, old-fashioned pastor that we had called it the high mass, which is a term more before the, the liturgical changes in the, uh, during the, the Second Vatican Council. But anyway, during high mass, there was always uh, a, a, a beautiful choir and we would use lots of frankincense. And I was one of the acolytes who knew how to handle that. And, and so I was always uh, handling the frankincense. I, be, it, during the Eucharistic prayer, I would kneel in front of the altar. And then when the priest would lift up the host and, and the chalice, I would just wave the frankincense. And for the rest of the prayer, we were stuck there on our knees. And the smoke would just completely envelop me. And I hated it. I really, really couldn't understand why, why the church used frankincense. I mean, I like the process of, of making a fire and then just trying to light up this coal and just the magic of using something physical like this in, in, in liturgy. But I, I totally abhorred the smell and it made me cough. And to be honest, I think it probably damaged my lungs because we've we've discovered that there are actually uh, uh, cancerous uh, materials in 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 the frankincense in the smoke. It's not good for you. Like any smoke is bad for you, and so is frank frankincense. So, yeah, in hindsight, probably wasn't a good idea to um, to to be so close to all that smoke for years and years and years of my life when my lungs were still developing. So why do we still use it? I have some thoughts. So first of all, frankincense is all over the Bible. And not just in the Jewish tradition and later on the Christian tradition, but it's also used in many other religions and in other rituals. We have countless stories of frankincense being used by the Greeks, by the Romans. They would use it sometimes in the sanctuaries. Like Delphi, you would have these ladies that were supposed to be mediums between this world and, you know, the, the invisible world. And they would inhale frankincense to, well, to get high probably. <laughs> and they would get visions and they would be overwhelmed by this powerful smoke. And then they would start to say strange things and that there were interpreters that would tell us well these are messages from from the beyond and you know frankincense played a big role in that frankincense was also used um in in sacrificial settings where um uh, and this also predates of course the 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 christian tradition um and the jewish tradition people would bring uh, like offerings to an altar and uh, these, these animals usually, or sometimes it would be bread or f food, all that would be cut into pieces and, and burned. And then the smoke from that sacrifice would, of course, raise to the heavens. And that was seen as a way in which you could reach <laughs> what is above us in a very physical way. You could just bring an offering, that would be burned, and, and then, then you would at least the smoke and the smell of your of the animal that you that you sacrificed would maybe reach the gods and then the gods may reward you for that sacrifice 
And um, later on in the Christian tradition, frankincense was used almost as a symbol of those old sacrificial rituals where you know the smoke was seen as a symbol of our prayers that that we lift up to god and we hope that god somehow hears us and and will respond to us and will help us and so frankincense has been used for centuries um in in the catholic tradition in the christian tradition and in many other religions so it's it's i think that, that by that by itself should be a reason to not get rid of it because it's such an ancient tradition and, and, and it becomes very hard to understand some of the, of the stuff you read in the Bible if you've never seen frankincense, if it's completely gone uh, and, and no longer used in rituals. But I have a second thought, and that is there are many different types of frankincense and there are also uh, certain ways in which this ritual is performed that doesn't really do what frankincense is supposed to do. Like if you've ever, if you abhor frankincense, and I know that some of you really hate it, and maybe it, it will make you uh, start coughing and it makes you unwell, maybe the experience that you've had is because, A, they were using very cheap frankincense, because frankincense was supposed to be a super expensive thing. It was important from the Middle East, um, and, and it was used for very, very special occasions. And... Um, cost a ton of money so but then of course in the catholic church it's used all over the world we cannot afford to pay a lot of money for this we still want frankincense so what we get is kind of this industrial almost derivative type of frankincense which has almost nothing to do with uh the frankincense that 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 we hear about in these ancient stories so it's 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 mass produced. It's made with pretty cheap ingredients. The the, the production process is still the same as, as for for any other type of frankincense, but the ingredients are just cheap, and so it doesn't smell very good. And the second, maybe even bigger problem is that a lot of people nowadays don't know how to burn frankincense. The thing is, frankincense itself is supposed to be kept very dry and preferably in an airtight container the same way in which you would preserve your coffee nobody is just gonna put coffee in a jar and then just open the lid and let it sit there in your cupboard for for weeks it will lose all its its fragrance and taste and it could even get moldy because it of course becomes humid the same happens with frankincense if you don't put it in airtight containers if you don't store it in a dry and warm place the frankincense itself, these beads, will start to become humid. And the, you notice when you burn wood that is not dry, when there's still moisture inside a log of wood, what happens? You get a lot of smoke. And the smoke is suffocating and bad for you. This, the same thing happens with frankincense. And, so, and I've witnessed this for years and years and years in most parishes, they don't know how to store their frankincense. Plus, they have the cheap, the cheap stuff. I have experienced what frankincense can also smell like in, 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 uh, in the Holy Land when I was on a pilgrimage there. And in the churches there, they would use a very different type of frankincense. They looked almost like candy, like, you know, uh, th there were these white balls, and it was almost as if they were covered in, in powdered sugar. 
And they would only use one of those crystals or whatever it was, put them on, on a very hot, white hot piece of coal. And then it, it would start to smell and you would see only a little bit of smoke. But you would smell flowers. You would smell roses. And it was like, wait a minute, where does this come from? Is that coming from that one little block of white stuff? And it, it, it was a revelation to me. It's like, if people would know that this is actually what frankincense is supposed to smell like, then, then I think a lot of people would, would change their opinion on frankincense. So th that is why I believe that, yes, I'm all in favor of maintaining the practice of using frankincense in, in the Catholic liturgy. However, I would, I would say... Let's invest in this. Let's make sure that whenever you use frankincense, and you don't use it every single day, you can, but I would say keep it for special occasions and then pay a little bit more and make sure that it's the good stuff and that it's well-preserved and that when people smell it, they, they will understand why it, when the wise men visit Mary and Joseph and their newborn child Jesus, they offer frankincense. You know, but it's it's the good stuff. <laughs> it's, it's not. Imagine if, if if Joseph and Mary would have had the frankincense that we we use in our funeral services and in our churches. They would probably send a letter to these magi. Please never come back. And what were you thinking? You know, our fragile little child, and then this putrid smoke. Please, <laughs> if we'd known, we'd never opened. We would have never opened the door. But no. No, the frankincense was such an incredible gift and such a valuable symbolic gift. Why do we forget that whenever we celebrate the liturgy, we have to make sure that we go for quality? And this, this applies to everything in liturgy. So much of our liturgical problems are, I think, due to the fact that we are so easy to please. We think that, you know, it's okay to have ho-hum liturgy when, when we have choirs that are unable to really sing what they have on their repertoire. Instead of trying to improve the choir or, or sing something simpler, no, we still think it's okay if, 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 if it sounds terrible because, you know, let's just look at the effort that people put into it. Sure. I mean, I don't, I do, I don't want liturgy to be just for the the rich people and it always has to be you know amazing and no no not everybody can 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 but you can you can keep it simple and still stylish as long as you put your maximum effort in it and 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 make sure that liturgy even even saint francis who of course was you know the saint who who rediscovered how important poverty is in the church as a, as a virtue even he would invest in the liturgy and he would make sure that the, the vestments and the, the, the chalices were made of, of, of high-value materials because he, he knew that, yes, for your, for your personal life, you may choose a life of poverty, but for God, only the good is good enough. Only the best is good enough. So I think, um, I think that is true also for frankincense. And, and well, I would say... Try it. Nowadays, on the internet, you, you can order good quality frankincense from 
the Holy Land or, you know, other countries. Uh, and just try it out and, and, and see if people will change their mind when, when they experience what it's actually supposed to be like. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers. Am I the only one who did the reading? I love historical novels, and um, I've read Pillars of the Earth a while ago, and while it wasn't the best book, it was still a riveting read, and I love to be taken to the Middle Ages and experience what those times were like through a fictional story and to learn about how they made the cathedrals and everything and about the politics and the monks versus the, the kings. And I, I just love that story. And so the other day I read a, a, a novel that has been on my reading list without exaggeration for almost 50 years. This book was written in the 70s, in 1973, if I'm not mistaken. So five years after I was born, by a, um, a Dutch uh, female uh, children's book writer. And the book was called Kruistocht uh, in Spijkerbroek. That's a Dutch title, it translated in English. It is um, A Crusade in Jeans. And it tells the story of a boy who travels back in time. That, this is way before... Back to the Future. Um, so uh, at the time, that was a, a pretty in, in innovative idea. So this boy from Rotterdam travels back in time and ends up in the Middle Ages. And he becomes part of a crusade where the pilgrims consist almost entirely of children, very vulnerable children. And there are about 30,000 of them that are trying to walk to the Holy Land, and they believe that they are on a mission from God. Um, this book was very popular when I was in school, but I never read it, and I don't, I still don't understand why, because I read almost everything. I guess I was just probably just being too busy rereading uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory for the hundredth time, or maybe uh, The Wizard of Oz, which is also one of my the, one of those books that I just read over and over and over again. So, or maybe there was just one copy of the book in our in our school library, and because it was so popular, it was always you you could never find it in the library. I don't know what the reason was. I just never got around reading it, and now fifty years later, I finally read it in in dutch um and uh and i loved it it's a story that still completely works even though the beginning and the end like the science fiction part of it where the the kid uh, steps into this time machine all that is almost glanced over you would tell that that part of the story very differently nowadays it almost feels like okay there, there's this kid hey a time machine let's go to the middle ages but then the central story which is 95% of the book is written very well and you feel like you're there and you experience these historical events because this is actually based on I'll get to that in a minute. We'll, we'll talk about what is what is fact and what is maybe the stuff of legends and fiction in this story. Were there really, you know, children's crusades? That sounds that sounds so cruel. And but hey, it's the Middle Ages, so who knows? But anyway, what before I want to talk about that, I, I want to uh, play a trailer 
of a movie that was based on this book. And it was filmed in English. Back then, it was one of the most expensive Dutch productions. Um, nowadays, the Dutch are actually pretty prolific when it comes to uh, internationally acclaimed movies. Back then... Dutch movies were seen as uh, a bit of a waste of money because, you know, who's going to watch movies? The Dutch market for, for theatrical releases is so small. This is one of the reasons that they actually wanted to uh, make this movie in English. Um, and so all the, all the kids that are playing in the movies, they, they had to learn their lines in English, and a lot of them were Dutch, uh, because they were hoping that this movie would have uh, an international success. I don't actually know how successful it was. What I do know is that it is no longer there. I cannot find it on any of the streaming platforms. I don't even think that there is a Blu-ray available of, of the movie. Um, and so the only way that I can watch this movie is probably by trying to find a secondhand DVD. And that also is starting to become really problematic nowadays because, you know, who, who makes money by selling DVDs? It's almost, even on Amazon, uh, I, I think they have like one copy of the DVD and it's outrageously expensive. Uh, and yet, you know, the trailer actually looks intriguing and, and I would really hope that one of these streaming platforms will release this um, because I think it's an awesome story. Um, anyway... Let's take a look at the trailer first, and then we'll talk some more about the history behind uh, this story. Here we go. Um, it's a very low resolution In 12, trailer. 12, the people of Rottweil witnessed a miracle. 10,000 loaves of bread were baked by one boy, the son of the Duke of Rotterdam. So? But Rotterdam didn't exist. Het zou de dag van zijn leven worden. This is in Dutch. <laughs> It would be the day of his life. What were you doing out there? Now Holland has to wait four more years for another chance. So they spent more time showing us the life of this boy before he traveled back in time. And here he goes back into the time machine and... Is plotseling alles anders. All of a sudden everything is different. What? He wanted to replay the football match. Crap. I'm in the 13th century. Crap. Travels back to 1212. Children's Crusade, led by Nicholas of Cologne. Did they run out of knights? There is no way back. Nu. I'm not supposed to be here. How do you know that? Trust me. Moet Dolph laten zien wat hij waard is. Now Dolph has to show what he's worth. They're not going to make it to Jerusalem. Be careful what you say. In een strijd tussen goed en kwaad. It's a battle between good and evil. Have you really thought about this? My name is Rudolf Vega, son of the Duke of Rostov. Based on the book by Thea Beckman. Where do you really come from? Jerusalem is suffering. Jerusalem courage. Away. How dare you? Friendship. Treason. Love. Kruistocht in Spijkerbroek. Crusade. Do you believe in miracles? You are a miracle to me. 15 November in the bioscoop. So this was in movie theaters in the Netherlands in 2006. And I 
did not see it in theaters. And I so regret it because let's be honest, even though this is a very low resolution trailer, it still looked really good. And I think I would watch this even over Willow because it's, 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 um, it, it just feels like a big budget Hollywood movie. And it's taking place in a, in a very interesting time in history. So let's talk about, uh, you know, what, what is it with these crusades? Um, of course, you, you know the history of the crusades themselves. This, this went on. There were multiple crusades to the Holy Land. And the idea was we need to make sure that the Holy Land isn't conquered by, by the Muslims uh, and, and that all these sacred places where so much of our Christian history has its roots um, are no longer uh, attainable or you cannot travel there anymore it's not safe and they even those they sacred places may be destroyed by you know people uh, that, that that don't really care that much for for <laughs> those christian stories so um often sanctioned by popes uh armies would travel to the holy land trying to uh conquer jerusalem and all these other sacred places now of course in in um, if you've had uh, history lessons in in school uh, oftentimes those those crusades are depicted as uh, maybe one of the worst examples of what the church has done in the in the history of mankind because it was of course cruel it was intolerant towards muslims um, it was uh, maybe just uh, a, a pretense pretense uh, to ju just to conquer and to have power over those lands and and maybe the religious aspect of it was just uh, an excuse to go to war. Um, now the actual history of the Crusades and how they took place is often simplified and uh, th there's much more to say about uh, about these Crusades and there are some excellent books about uh, written about them. Um, and some of them are actually also on my reading list, so I'm sure that this is a topic that I will revisit in the future here on the show. Um, but what about these children's crusades? Well, it turns out that uh, the children's crusades as such were uh, only mentioned by very few sources that are contemporary to the events uh, that these stories talk about. So we're talking about the year 2012, uh, sorry, about the year 1212, I should say. Um, and according to uh, historic research, there were actually, in fact, two, you could say, rogue crusades that were taking place where people joined from all sorts of ages and backgrounds. One started in Germany and the other one started in France. And the one that this book talks about is, uh, is the one that was led from Germany. And according to these uh sources contemporary like these medieval sources uh the idea was was kind of the same as what the story uh of of um crusade in jeans uh talks about um a small a young boy would get visions and uh, revelations and god would tell this uh, in, i think it was in france it was a shepherd boy um only 12 years old that he was to lead people to the holy land to make sure it was safe from the Muslims. And, uh, of course, in order to get there uh, quickly without having to travel through so many different countries, the, the fastest way was to go to Italy and then cross the sea. And according to the prophecies of this boy, the God would split the sea in two, just like he had done with the Red Sea and Moses. 
So God would make sure that they could travel from the coast of Italy to the Holy Land directly. So it would be feasible. And tens of thousands of people believed it. However, these people that went on that crusade were probably not children. In fact, in fact, the, the Latin word, uh, and a lot of these uh, sources, historical sources, were, were written in Latin, was uh, the word for, for children is pueri. But uh, there are similar words in, in medieval Latin that actually not, don't necessarily indicate children, but more like the people without power. The small ones. When Jesus talks about the small ones, he's not just talking about children. He's talking about anyone who is not powerful, who is not rich, who is uh, maybe sick and discarded. And, and, and those crusades were actually consisted of a lot of poor people that were hoping that maybe this is their way out of poverty. Maybe if we follow this child who's clearly touched by God, God will give us a reward and he will bring us to the Holy Land and maybe we can just stay there. And it can become our new dwelling place. And so the reality was that um, these people were duped. Maybe not necessarily on purpose, but what happened is when they arrived in, in Italy, the miracle did not happen. The sea did not split in two. And that's, of course, when uh, all hell breaks loose. And then there were some some very evil uh, 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 com commercial, uh, <laughs> or you could say almost pirates, um, and they would offer these poor people um, passageway on their ships. They said, "We will bring you to the Holy Land," but instead, they would they would go straight to Tunisia or to other countries, and and these all these poor duped pilgrims would be sold as slaves. And there is no historical record of any of these uh, crusaders ever reaching the Holy Land. Furthermore, these crusades, even though they were called crusades in those tales, weren't officially sanctioned by the Pope. In fact, I think it was Innocent III actually condemned those crusades and said that anyone who would partake in those uh, crusades of the poor was considered to be excommunicated. And... The Pope even uh, tried to, to convince people to return home, to not travel to the Holy Land. Maybe because he had gotten word of, of that they would maybe end in slavery. And so um, the book itself is, is interesting because it contains so many historical facts to, as, as a basis for what is ultimately a fictional story. Um, and it's also what I liked about the book is it, it tells this, the, the, the whole event from the perspective of a boy who is actually not a Christian. He's never been brought up religiously. And so he hears about this. this he even meets this, this uh, shepherd boy who has these visions. And he's like, yeah, of course, there has to be another explanation for this. And he doesn't trust it. And, of course, his instincts prove to be right. At the same time, he also learns to respect the... the the faith of these children and, and their prayers and their hopes. So it's, a, I think, a very balanced story. And ultimately, when he discovers that, that, that these children are, may end up as slaves, he actually takes the lead and, 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 and starts to try to uh, prevent 
this disaster from from happening and and saves a lot of these children. Anyway, I, I just spoiled the entire story for you, but I, it was a super enjoyable read. And again, I hope that one day we will get to see this movie on uh, on streaming platforms. And since it's in English, all of you could enjoy it because I don't even know if there's an English translation of the book, but there probably should be. But also, that one was hard to find online. Maybe if you know of uh, of um, an ebook uh, in English, uh, let me know, and I'll I'll plug it on on the next episode of the show. We are on the cutting edge of technology. Wow. Well, what does that mean? Let's plug it in. It's going to say, hey, I see you plugged in a new device. And it's going to load in the appropriate drivers. You'll notice that this scanner built... Whoa. Well, all your technology stuff, it just ends in disaster. But there is one more thing. All right. We need to talk about technology and video games. Let's start with video games. I'm always on the lookout for cool new games that I can try out. And one of my favorite genres is actually racing games. Maybe it's because I don't have a car. And on my bike, I'm always pretty slow because I'm not really a natural-born biker. But I do like video games that let me race. And so I was super excited to discover that there is a new racing game but it's with Lego. It's called Lego 2K Drive. It's out on Xbox and probably also on PlayStation and on PC, although I didn't check that. Maybe also on the Nintendo Switch. Um, And it actually looks pretty cool. So let's go and check out the trailer. Here it is. Racing is everywhere in Big Butte. So I'm how it's done. Boom! Touch the sky! That was awesome! Weaving in and out of the great stone that was monuments, awesome. Everything's surging awesome. along the dazzling waterways, and tearing up the town with friendly competition. You're on fire, Hotshot. Dang it! Thanks to you, blockheads, I actually have to try this time. Oh, I'm going to smash you good for no apparent reason. You really think you can beat me? Silky smooth. Are coming out. <laughs> Me, ow. I've got horsepower. Giddy up. Come on, Hotshot. <laughs> Let's get back out there and show the world what you can really do. Building, exploring, destruction, and racing. Everything is awesome. <laughs> and a cow is abducted by a UFO for some undisclosed reason. Oh my gosh. I, I think this looks really awesome. And um, I'm, I hope that they will bring this to uh, Microsoft Game Pass so I can pr- play it because I maybe will not pick this up for a full price. But I will certainly, one day I will play this. What I like about this is it, it actually looks pretty good as a racing game. It reminds me a bit of, um, there was this uh, Nintendo game uh, with uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. But it was, you were racing and it, it was a bit like Nintendo Karts. You could push other uh, uh, cars off the road but it had one thing that uh, Mario Kart didn't have you could transform on the fly into an airplane or a boat so you would not only be racing on 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 roads but also you go through roads where we go we don't need roads we have waterways we have you know you could fly in the sky and um, I, I love that game uh, this looks to me heavily inspired by it the cool thing is one, 
it has a story mode. So all the, the, the cutscenes that you heard is actually part of an entire story um, that is the basis for the game. So you, as the further you progress, the more you, uh, you get to see of the story. And there is also an evil guy who is, of course, the nemesis of the story and apparently is, is super funny. Um, and the second thing uh, that is very cool is that you can actually create your own vehicles. You can build as if you were building with Lego. You can use anything available in in the big lego catalog to build your own ship your own car <laughs> airplane boat and whatnot um and and that of course is an aspect that um uh that that is super cool and i i bet you that a lot of people that will play this game will spend more time on building their vehicles than actually racing with them so yeah i love it uh, 2k drive lego 2k drive let me know if you have played the game i'd love to hear how it is um we also need to talk about uh, other types of technology um especially i want to talk a little bit about uh, about the future of short messages short text messages uh, you all have followed of course uh, the developments at twitter and how there is a, it's very much in turmoil still is there's almost it seems to have seems to have calm, calmed down a little bit but for weeks and weeks and weeks every time it's like oh my gosh can it get any worse what's happening to twitter what is elon musk actually what is his master plan or is there even a plan and so uh, more and more people and i'm one of them uh, we're, we're exploring other options, alternatives. I ended up uh, on Mastodon and still really like it there. It's um, it's it's similar to Twitter, but it's also a bit more small scale. Uh, and I it takes more time to figure out how it works. But I have actually a ton of interesting um, uh, columns, you know, columns with different topics that I'm following. So it works almost the same as TweetDeck. Um, and I have a, a small but very interesting group of followers and people that I follow. And uh, so I go there every day to get my fix of, uh, of updates. It still misses a, fee a few key players and especially like big media companies. Although uh, a number of, of news agencies already have made the switch or also are now on, on Mastodon. So as a source of, of news, it also becomes more and more interesting. What I like about Mastodon, of course, is not one single entity that that uh, controls it, which is kind of the flaw of, of Twitter. All the moderation has to be done by Twitter itself. And so if the boss decides that we're no longer going to moderate and, you know, I'm just going to let a lot of people on there of, um, let's say, questionable background, um, there's nothing you can do. It's commercial enterprise with Mastodon. Anyone can start a Mastodon instance. And so uh, it, the whole moderation is, is outsourced to, you know, the owners of that particular instance. So if you have a Mastodon uh, server, you can set up your own rules. You can say, I don't want... For instance, there's, an, uh, there's a Catholic Mastodon instance, and they are very good at moderating and making sure that th that's, it is a safe place where, where people are not constantly attacked, which is uh, one of, unfortunately one of the issues on, on Twitter uh, for, for people of faith. It's often a place where you get a lot of harassment. Um, one of the big players that wants to get a piece of the pie is Meta. Meta, of course, formerly known as Facebook, also owns WhatsApp and Instagram and a, and a number of other platforms. And the moment Twitter started to become even more controversial, they started working on their own alternative to Twitter. And apparently, 
It's almost ready for release. It doesn't have a name yet, but we already have some official statements about what this platform will uh, what it will look like and how it will fit into the overall media landscape. And so what we know is that it is going to be based mostly on Instagram, which I think is a very smart move because Instagram is still, you know, even though uh, there's a lot of controversy ab uh, about recent changes that, that Meta makes and it seems to be constantly in flux, but it still has millions and millions and millions of active users. And so apparently this Twitter alternative is going to use the same audiences. If you are already on Instagram and you move over to that short text uh, platform, you, will, you can bring along all your followers. Also, the people you have blocked, and unfortunately sometimes you have to do that on Instagram, that will also move with you to Instagram, or to the, to the Insta Instagram uh, uh, short form, whatever clone it is. Um, so I think that's a very smart move because still there, even though with all its quirks, uh, Instagram is still for a lot of influencers a, a very important place to be active. They have large followings. And so they get a head start, which Mastodon, of course, doesn't have. Mastodon used to be very fringe. And it's only recently that it started to grow. And then the second smart thing that Meta is doing is it is opening it up to, to Mastodon users and anyone who's using this open platform uh, protocol. So if I'm only on Mastodon, I can still follow people that are on the Instagram meta platform and hopefully also vice versa, although I'm not sure of that. But they make sure that they, they open it up to you know, users that are on other platforms. You're not, you're not in, in prison when, once you decide to, to focus on this new platform. Now, I don't know, again, how, how much of this is going both ways, but I applaud them for opening this up and, and, and uh, using this open protocol. Um, which maybe also be just a smart business move because then you get all the Mastodon users also at least trying to connect with the people that are using your, your meta platform. Um, there are a few leaked screenshots of the app uh, and it looks very similar to Twitter. You'll be able to post photos as well as uh, five-minute videos and so they also try to tap into that, you know, the reels and the TikTok competition and if TikTok ultimately will end up getting banned, which of course is still not sure at all. Um, Meta wants to make sure that they have a head start and they have an alternative for all those people that are making short form content. Very smart. Now I wonder if, if Google is, is going to also come up with, uh, with uh, an alternative. I don't know if they're gonna jump on this bandwagon. They've tried so many things in the past and then abandoned it just as quickly. But I think it's a good thing that we have choices. We're no longer uh, stuck to this one particular platform that is owned by one person who can basically do anything he wants. Um, if, if we want to have an open forum, uh, we need to make sure that everyone can participate in this global conversation. And at the same time, there are safeguards that people can be safe, that there is no harassment, that you can set rules and enforce them. Um, so, yeah, I have, I, have, uh, I have not faith in Meta, I couldn't say that, but I have high hopes for the future of short-form communication. And the more players, the merrier, because they will 
try to compete and that will keep everybody sharp. And with that, it is time to wrap things up. Thank you so much for your time uh, and for your participation in making this show. I want to do a special shout out to all my patrons, the people that support me on a monthly basis with their micro donations. And I want to mention by name a new patron, Theodore Jackson, who joined this past week. Thank you so much and welcome to my Patreon community. Welcome also to the Discord server. And I also want to uh, make a shout out to Scott Staub, who uh, moved up to a higher tier. So he's uh, having a little bit more available... Uh, uh, he has more resources to uh, support me a little bit more. If you want to join that wonderful Patreon community... Take a look at patreon.com slash fatheroderick. You can already become a patron and join the Discord community for as little as $2.50 per month. So don't let that stop you. <laughs> Thanks again for uh, the privilege of your time. Let me know in the comments and on my socials what you think. If you have any suggestions and questions, you know how to reach me. And we'll talk soon. Take care. Have a good preparation for Pentecost next week. And may the force be with you. <laughs> <laughs>